and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing, well, this time, you're just going to have to wait and see. Welcome to episode 24, The Room Where It Happens. I'm Alex, and I'm first person. I'm Freya, and I'm second person. I'm Macy, and I am third person, because I'm sensible. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. <laughs> and that's funny, because that's the order that we always go in. I'm going to argue with Macy about her being the sensible one, though, because I'm pretty sure that's Freya. <laughs> that's true, but I have actually written second person, which you are right, is a very nonsensical point of view to write from have you written from second person no i guilty in what context it was listen the entire story was 720 words long i feel like at that length it's like justifiable to fuck around you can you can be experimental at that length i have a couple of fanfics in second person i'm not quite sure why it was a phase i went through it's over now this was the one short thing that got rejected for being slipstream i I still do not understand what (laughs) slipstream is People keep trying to explain it to me, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're making that up. Yes. Well, today we're screaming faintly into our microphones like literary velociraptors because we just finished National Novel Writing Month, and that's what we're going to tell you about today. (laughs) Yay! It has been a month, dear listeners. But first, for the love of God, now that we've got all these goddamn audio issues sorted out... God, Alex, you've jinxed this. Something is going to go wrong. <laughs> I'm calling us out. I'm calling Again? the jinx out. Just to give you a little background information, dear listeners, we just had to spend like 10 minutes fucking with our audio to make it work. So we're just going to like go ahead with the episode and whatever happens, happens. Freya, what the fuck are you reading? <laughs> Too many fucking books, Alex, is what I have been reading. Given that true, it has true. been National Novel Writing Month and I should have been spending my free time producing words rather than devouring them. But in particular, I finally read Witchmark by C.L. Polk. Such a good book. Oh, my God. Which I was very pleased to get onto. I had promised myself I could only read it when I finished my book, and it was delightful. And I also read a novella called Sing for the Coming of the Longest Night, which is coming out, I think, December 7th or around there. So it may be out by the time that this actually airs. It is a novella by two of my good friends, Catherine Fabian and Iona Dat Sharma, and I described it to somebody on Twitter as being about a sensible gay married pathologist and a blue-haired non-binary composer who have to bicker their way through a magical quest when their mutual boyfriend goes missing. Um, love? It's basically about modern queer found family and it's set in London and it's got really imaginative sort of small magic and really deep emotions, as well as being two of my friends. These are two of my favorite writers. It is a beautiful little novella. I recommend it to absolutely everyone. That sounds fantastic. Whereas I have been mostly just writing and day jobbing this month because there's only so many hours in the day. Um, But I did manage to start a book that I've had on my shelves for a long while, uh, 1491, which is a revision of the commonly understood history of the American continents 
before Columbus arrived and the agriculture and ecology and the degree to which those were managed by the uh, Native Americans who were there before the settlers came and colonized. And I began rereading that. I began reading that on Thanksgiving because it seemed appropriate. Yes, yes indeed. Um, I have mostly been reading some just short things as kind of a palate cleanser in between writing. Um, mm -hmm. Huge shout out to Shannon McGuire's article on Tor.com, uh, The Bodies of the Girls Who Made Me, Fanfic and the Modern World, which I guess came mm -hmm. out in April, but somehow I um, only became aware of it like last week, and it's so good. Uh, <laughs> I also read some Think of England fanfic this week, because for some reason I wanted that. The heart wants what the heart wants. And I, because I guess KJ Charles fanfic was what my heart wanted, I also read uh, Freya and Emily's Society of Gentlemen fanfic, Mr. Webster's Wager, which is one of my favorites. <laughs> I think that may have been one of the first fics of yours that I ever read, Freya. Well, that's a very good introduction to me, if by me yeah. you want, like, dirty, <laughs> dirty porn. Right. I mean, that is what I want to read, Freya. <laughs> I feel so used. Aww. Uh, Aww. We're going to actually talk about that because uh, I we're answering questions later on uh, in this episode. We'll get to that. Uh, also, yesterday I received in the mail an arc of uh, Jen Lyons' epic fantasy, The Ruin of Kings, which is coming out next spring, March or April, mm -hmm. I think. And I have only read one chapter of it. And... It's fantastic, and I'm wildly in love with Jen Lyons now. And I'm also wildly <laughs> jealous of Jen Lyons because I happened to flick to the back of the book and I saw that she has not one, not two, but four appendices. Oh, God. In classic <laughs> epic fantasy bullshit fashion. I'm deeply jealous. I want four appendices of my own. She has a glossary. She has a list of all the royal houses in their heraldry. She has a... Uh, pronunciation guide and she has a family tree and I've never been so happy in all my dates. I was to try to put so my map what I've been reading. into Catalyst. I believe it currently has eight layers of transparency with different like political oh, layouts wonderful. and borders and rivers and mountains and trade routes on it. So it's like physically incapable nice. unless you put like transparency sheets into the book, which I feel like the production department would have issue with. Whereas yeah. the map I have for my new project is still a piece torn out of <laughs> an A5 notebook written in purple texture. <laughs> it's just like, okay, here's what the eight things are called. Here's where the two ports are. Done. And here's some mountains. Done. And even getting me that far was like Macy had to hold my hand and be like, Freya, where are the mountains? Didn't I draw it? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to, I, I, I did all of those boundaries. I was so Macy, proud. Macy and I are here to hold your hand through geography, and you're here to hold our hands through porn. Yep. So, you know, yep. uh, it all works out in the end. Uh, let's move on to the episode. But Please. first, before we do that, a very brief scream of agony. This is the last episode that goes up in 2018, you guys. I, that doesn't I just, sound right. No. I know. That's not how linear time works. What about 2018 has been linear? Did you know that well, there was true. an Olympics this year? No, there was. I did not there know was that an Olympics actually. this year. Freya knows because it was full of skaters. Wrong. Yes, Freya remembers because she actually did watch all of the skating. But it has since been eclipsed by the most recent, you know, seat Grand Prix season. So that could have happened four years ago, or three, or two. Who knows? 
Sorry, a cat was causing mischief. Listeners, Alex just lobbed an object across the room. I have no idea what it is, but I I choose to believe it was the cat. Well, it was a pillow. The cat was like rummaging on the other side of the room and she was, usually I can just snap my fingers at her and she runs away, but she was not. So I had to throw something. A pillow. I just, just a pillow. Do do we feel like venturing towards the episode? I'm going to cut all this out anyway. It's fine. Like I'm going to already do like a fuckload of editing on this episode. So it's (laughs) fine. So we did National Novel Writing Month. Congratulations to everyone. We're recording this on ep- on episode 30. God, no, day 30. <laughs> uh, the 30th of November is the day that we're recording this. And as you can tell from like our whole deal, it's been a month. Well, it's December 1st where I am. That's which is true. Like, psychologically very different. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, listeners, where I am, it is 4.48 p.m., on the 30th of November. Would you like to ask me, fellow serpents, how many words I have left to write? How many How many words do you have left? 545. Holy shit. You could probably do that like while we're recording in the middle of like, while Freya is doing one of her monologues. Ah, That's true. You could just transcribe <laughs> the monologue, put it into your book, and then just delete it in edits. Listen, yeah. this, is, this is the bit of my book in which the punchy blacksmith attempts to do politics so I should probably mm. actually pay attention to writing it. But yeah. yeah. So when we say finished NaNoWriMo, we're, u- we're using that term generously. Survived? That's true. Survived. 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 Yes. 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 Yeah. So Freya, do you want to tell us what your book is about? Yes. Well, I actually have a two for one here because I spent the first half of NaNoWriMo finishing the book that I had almost finished. So I was definitely getting NaNoWriMo daily word counts and then I finished my book and now I have moved on to another book, which was possibly a bad idea because the last time I finished a book, I took a two-month break from writing <laughs> before I could scrounge up my energy and my brain cells and my creativity to start another one. And I think I'm about to hit the dip that I didn't take, which mm. is why my word count did not actually get to 50,000. But it was a very respectable 35,000, including finishing a draft. I was so happy. Yeah, definitely you should be proud A of draft of what, Freya? I'm getting there. All right, the book I finished, uh, working title, it's called Foresight. The conceit of this book is what if the magical world and the non-magical world had a bureaucratic liaison? Each of them had one public servant and their job was to get together once a week and to share information. Like in Harry Potter, the Prime Minister meets with the Minister of Magic. The other what-ifs with this are, number one, obviously, what if they fell in love? Number two... (laughs) What if the non-magical liaison public servant was assigned that role by mistake and does not actually know that magic exists? And number three, what if it was Edwardian England so that most of the action could take place at a manor house party? (laughs) Exceedingly Freya. Exceedingly Freya. Yes. So Freya. I mean, there's some other stuff with like curses and magical mazes and like dead bodies. But the important stuff is that they fall in love. And the other book is about three Slytherins plotting for the throne of Fantasy Australia. Nice. That's a really good elevator pitch, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Thank you. I didn't have an elevator pitch. And then I had a very long phone call with my agent who was like, Freya, what the hell is the hook of this book? I was like, um, um, (laughs) I I don't know. My agent just keeps asking me what the plot of the book is. And I feel like... (laughs) 
Whereas like, I had too much plot, and she was yeah. like, yeah, 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 fine, 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 plot. What's the hook? And yeah. I was like, meh. But now there is one. So there's only about 12,000 words of that one in existence at the moment. Nice. But So you it's, got, it's you got like 35,000 words for the whole month? Yep. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I was happy with that. Cool. Macy, what do you see? Tell us about your book. Mostly, when people ask me what is my book about, I make grumpy, screaming hedgehog noises uh, because I, I dislike being made to answer essay questions as if I was some sort of like literary person um, instead of a lapsed mathematician who accidentally re- fell over in a dragon in the dragon's section of the library and like never got up. No, see, what you have to do is pretend that you're at a convention and you are trapped in an elevator with the ghost of Diana Wynne-Jones oh, and no. someone else that you no. really respect. No. And they are oh like, what is your book about? And you have to impress them in less than 20 seconds. My book is about what happens when a Slytherin princess fake marries a punchy blacksmith and they have politi- political hijinks in a court full of intrigue and have to foil some magical bioterrorism. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. See, you just you just strung together some AO3 tags and you came up with a hook. It's perfect. Fake married, magical bioterrorism. Yeah. Punchy yeah. Slytherins. It's a renaissance Naples with a magic that takes two people to do and everybody is lying about everything and there are some useless lesbians. You don't have to tell us that. We already knew that because this is Jennifer May's novel. I mean, you you are not wrong. One of them's bisexual. She she has a boyfriend in the earlier bits of the book, but then she punches him a bunch and is confused when he's no longer her boyfriend. Weird. I mean, the other way around. Weird how genders. that happens. Weird how that happens. Weird how that happens. Don't don't punch your significant other's friends. That is bad. Yeah. So I, I've talked a big game about uh, how I was going to write 100,000 words this month. That's not happening. And that's okay. Uh, and I think maybe, I don't know if we'll have time later in the episode, but if not, then I did just write a Twitter thread today about failure to reach a goal and how it's okay. Because earlier this week or late last week, I some stuff came up and I talked to my agent and... Uh, it turned out that I'm going to be sending him a draft of this book that I'm currently working on instead of the other book, which is currently with my betas. And so I kind of took a day to stop and think about like how I needed to get this book done and what I needed to do to get it to a point where it was ready to show to him. And I decided that I was going to take a step back from going full tilt on... Uh, just producing words and start editing this book instead. Mm-hmm. So I only have, right now I'm at like 91,000 words uh, for the month. I'm probably going to get at least another thousand words before bed. So I'm ending the the, the month with 92,000 words and instead of 100,000. And that's really good. Like, And I kind of want to say for anyone who is finishing NaNoWriMo or surviving NaNoWriMo and didn't get to 50k, as, as long as you got some words, you won. Like, you have more words than you started with, and that's fantastic. Uh, So the book that I was working on is the shamelessly self-indulgent, tropetastic book of my heart. Uh, And it's about a prince and how he falls in love with his bodyguard and some stuff happens. And I don't want to tell you too much about it, because if I do, we're going to go straight into spoilers. This book is essentially Alex processing, regurgitating, and polishing beautifully all of the fealty fanfic that she has been reading for the past Correct, two years. Correct, yes. Yes, yes. It's great. So speaking of delightful tropes, what are the tropes that you were most excited to write in your books, Alex? All right. So <laughs> this book... I have kind of just 
Told this book <laughs> has all the tropes. Freya mentioned the the fealty, which is a big one. Uh, there's some enemies to lovers, which is which were you most excited about? Which what I'm most excited about? Yeah, probably the fealty. Then I mean, Freya mm-hmm. like nailed it. Did do you want me so, to go more into detail about what I love about I, fealty, or shall we just like re recommend that people go listen to what was it episode seven? <laughs> no, that was five. It was. Five. I think that <gasps> yes. um, the fealty dynamics though are interesting in this one, right? Because you have a whole range of demonstrations of fealty and the different ways that it can play out. One, my favorite scene in this book is where uh, the two main characters are washing each other's hair in a bathhouse. And talking about the ethics of fa- <laughs> Do you have something to say? <laughs> They're washing each other's hair in a bathhouse and talking about the ethics of fealty and how it's... I, and I think we already talked about this on uh, the episode we did about it, where how fealty is a two-way street and how mm-hmm. um, it's... It, a, a system of feudalism can only be ethical if both parties are getting something out of it. And... Sure. So the, the vassal provides service and obedience to the Lord or possibly physical tribute in the form of money or crops or whatever, uh, or taxes. And uh, the Lord in return gives them protection and an identity and a bunch mm-hmm. of other more like abstract stuff, uh, mm-hmm. primarily protection. Like you are the organizing force that is keeping the next door neighbors from coming in and raping and pillaging and burning their fields and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if one party is not getting that or if the scales are out of balance, then usually the, the vassals are being exploited and then that turns not so great. And so the the prince in this book is very concerned about how to be ethical and he's very aware of how much power he has and how he doesn't want to use it in a way that's damaging to the people around him and especially to the people who owe their loyalty to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas I think that it is no surprise to anyone which trope I was most excited to write in this book. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Is it the useless lesbians? Uh, no. Is it the marriage of convenience? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, it's the fake marriage slash marriage of convenience. So this book that I'm talking about is is working title Catalyst, and I've been working on it for a long while now um, in various forms and formats. But the center of the whole magic system is the idea of the difference between talent and skill. So this is a world where it takes two people to do magic, and one of them has the power, the talent, they just innately have it, and the other one has to practice and learn how to use it, and thus is the one with the skill. And you need both of them to do any magic at all, so in this society, that is what marriage has come Mm. to mean. And so we start with our uh, useless political lesbian, who has not managed to find herself a spouse for various reasons, and our punchy blacksmith who doesn't actually have magic. And so in order to inherit her house, this useless lesbian is wandering the streets of the capital city going, will you be my wife? (laughs) (laughs) To any marginally attractive and or eligible catalyst that she runs across. And punchy blacksmith says, sure. And hijinks ensue. And hijinks ensue. And they are 80,000 words into the book. 
They kissed for the first time at 74,000 words. Good. Good job. Capri <laughs> is very proud. Uh, the punchy blacksmith has just realized that she caught emotions. Oh no, the worst. <laughs> it's the worst. And I am having so much fun with all of the um, subsidiary tropes that I feel a lot of marriage of convenience and fake marriage comes with, such as, oh no, there's only one bed. Yes. Yes, classic. classic. Love it. And kissing to avert suspicion. Oh my god, yes, absolutely. Also classic. And, you know, having feelings about terms of endearment that the other one is clearly lying about to use about you. Okay, all right. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. It took me a second to you parse know, that, but I got my it. my love. Yeah. My wife. Calling, like, my love in public when you know that they don't love you, and except they do uh-huh. secretly love you. Yeah. That's some good shit. That yeah. Good shit. It's the good yeah. shit. It's, it's the, good the good shit. shit. So I've been having way too much fun with that delightful i think the flippant answer is that i was really excited to write sex magic Mm. because (laughs) i was on brand on brand but it's not really it's more sort of magic used during sex for Mm -hmm. funsies but it wasn't really sex magic that one's going to be coming up in the next book magical sex toy maybe yeah kind of Mm -hmm. yeah just magic used for sexual pleasure that was like one of the carrots I had to like hold out to myself, be like, get to the sex scene, get to the magic sex scene to get make myself like get through the plot. Huge move, though. This is why I can't skip ahead and write the fun bits. But I think for tropes, the trope that I was most excited to write in this one was basically terrible families. Yeah. Because my last book, both of the main characters had fairly supportive, nice families. And I liked that, that because you don't always see that in books. Right. But this time I decided to run headlong in the other direction and give them both absolutely awful families. <laughs> uh, well, in different ways. One of them has terrible parents and the other has terrible siblings. And so writing two people who have been very much shaped by how awful their families mm. and their upbringing were in particular ways uh, and the ways in which those people can be good for one another or but can come up, come up against one another's rough edges. That was fun. That was a lot of fun to write. And you know what I'm realizing here, listening to all of us talk and thinking about a few threads that have been rattling around Twitter today, is that we all interact with each other's tropes on a mm-hmm. fairly regular basis. Like both of you guys have various forms of, of fake marriage in your works in general. And I know that, Ale- I would argue, Alex, that you have bad family and I definitely have bad family yeah. stuff in some of my work. And so that's really interesting to me. And fealty is always entertaining. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that the three of us work so well together, both as like crit partners and as like podcast wives, is because like we share so much of the same like foundational core of like stuff that we're excited about. Yeah. I mean you say fake marriage or marriage of convenience and all of us just make like the O emoji ah! face. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> but like a, a Macy fake marriage book is gonna be totally different from a Freya fake marriage book is gonna be totally different from an Alex fake marriage yep. book. And there's room for all of them. Um, and particularly when now we get to do queer fake marriage. Yes. Or like threesome fake marriage <laughs> if one is Freya. Uh, yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. But I wanted to ask a corollary to this question, which comes up from a class I took with Kate Elliott a long time back in which Kate was talking about the tropes that she keeps accidentally writing into her works again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I've been putting arranged marriage and fake marriage into all of my books for 20 years now, but I finally managed to write a book without fake marriage in it, without an arranged marriage in it. And that book is Court of Fives. I don't know if either of you have read Court of Fives. No, No, I gave it to my sister for her birthday and I have yet to steal it back from her and read it. The punchline here 
is that in the Court of Fives, one of the minor plot points is that the father gets forced into an arranged marriage and Kate had forgotten <laughs> that she'd put it in. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> so what's what's your like eternal trope? My eternal trope, I have put this in every book that I have written since I was 11 years old. <laughs> and it's this theme of home and losing or leaving your home or having it taken away from you or leaving and then coming back to it and finding out that you mm. can't ever really come back to it because the journey has changed you, even if time right. hasn't changed your home itself. Uh, and so, God, all of them, all of them, like even it's even there with the chants because like the mm. core thing about a chant is that they sink their homeland beneath, sink the, waves. Their home beneath yes. the waves and they leave their home, they give it up in order to have this other thing. Yep. So yeah, that comes up all the fucking time and it's in this book too <laughs> how about you freya is there one that comes to mind i think so i can't say it's in every book i've ever written given that i have written a grand total of two but certainly looking back on everything that i have written in fic and stories and other things there is always a theme of personal control mm. and somebody who, who and the lengths to which you will go to maintain control on things mm. and what happens when your control is threatened and how do you reconcile a loss of control with your conception of your personality when it's something that's very ingrained? And that's something that has appeared over and over in the fanfic that I've written and definitely, I think, showed up in small ways in the books, but is always there in at least one character that for whom that is a defining trait and a defining theme throughout mm -hmm. the book. But I also discovered something that I am now interested in writing in that it came up in Foresight as part of it was almost accidental in the world building and now i am writing the next this new book that i've started is almost entirely about that as a central theme and that is to do with um uh power deriving from land and making mm. uh, a bargain making a bargain with a yes. land in a sense in order to to get power which is a thing that happens in the book i just finished and it is yeah absolutely the central magical uh, hook of the new book nice i really love that i really love that as a thing i'm so excited Do you have a favorite a favorite recur recurring theme macy well i have a cosmetic one um mm. which is magical bodily transformation so i have okay, this in yeah. all of my short fiction i have you know small girl turns into plant small girl gives herself wings um <laughs> in Hagstone, the main character, ends up getting the eyes of a cormorant. And I was going to say that this didn't happen in Catalyst, but then I remember they have magical uh, wedding tattoos, so it does. But the more, like, the deeper theme or trope that I think I keep coming back to is secrets about yourself and about your identity and revealing them to others or, like, choosing to reveal them to others or choosing not to. In this book, the... Isabel, my Slytherin princess, has a big secret about how her magic works that's very dangerous for her, and it's going to be a very intimate cornerstone moment when she does choose to share that with her wife Kiara. And that's something that is important to me uh, as someone who is queer, as someone who has disabilities. Um, thinking about what you get to disclose and under what circumstances to whom, I think yeah. that's going to be something that I keep following up on. I think that all of our favorite tropes really are very us, <laughs> in a way. Yes. Like, yours is very you, and Freya's is very, very Freya. And, uh, like, I suspect that I know the reason why mm -hmm. behind mine. 
And yeah, like it's just interesting how that how that happens. Isn't it? Well, they yeah. talk about writing what you know and then all of us in genre turn around and say, well, that's boring. What if I wrote <laughs> magic instead? <laughs> but I think it is true that to a certain extent you are writing the story of what you are most interested in examining. Otherwise, mm. you're not going to have the impetus to get yourself through an entire book. You are always writing to examine something, to tease out an idea. Right. And it's absolutely unsurprising that there are ideas built into the fabric of us that we can't help but explore over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. We'll have a retrospective in 10 years. We'll look back. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, sure. The the venerable, venerable authors of SF&F that we will be by then. Yes. Venerable? Yes, you guys won't even be 40 yet. <laughs> Calm down. That's true. I'm going to be 38. Man, hold on. Derail for a second. I can't wait to be 40 years old. I'm like so excited to be 40 years old. I'm excited for my 30s. Yeah. I don't know if I'm excited to get to 40 because I like already my joints are like, why are you doing that motion? Yeah, that's fair. My limited experience of the 30s so far is that they are pretty great. Yeah. I can just yes. feel my giving a shitness being gradually stripped away with each passing exactly. year it is beautiful you'll mentor us right senpai absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> says the why not <laughs> my idea of mentoring will yes. be like have another gin and tonic that's right <laughs> what everybody thinks about you doesn't matter at Listeners, all <laughs> when i went to visit freya in australia freya taught me how wine oh, oh it was she? so good it was so much wine and plotting we plotted most of the politics of Macy's book over a wine degustation dinner at the fanciest restaurant in Canberra. And then we woke up the next day and we're like, we can't remember half of what we've just planned. <laughs> that is literally It was true. so we like, intelligent and smart sounding at the time. And then we had to try and write it down. That's adorable. Uh, uh, it was a beautiful night. <laughs> so do we want to move on and talk a little bit about taxonomies of characters? I don't Always. think we could go through a, a whole episode without talking about some kind of taxonomy. So yeah, let's let's go for it. I love me a taxonomy. <laughs> so pick a couple of main characters. I think we both have, we all have two main characters of our books. We do. I think so, yes. Our books. All right. Taxonomize. Alex, go. Oh, God, I'm the only one who doesn't have them figured out. God damn it. I was like, oh, this is great. Freya's going to monologue for at least five minutes. I was like, oh, it's fine. Alex is just going to improvise. No, no, no. It's fine, Alex. Yeah. We'll we'll gently coax you through it. We already figured out that Kado has to be either... So, all right. So just hold on. For the, okay. for the listener's sake, Kado is the prince and his bodyguard is called Evermer. Cool. Now we can go ahead. Now we can That'll go just ahead. make things well, we, we figured easier. out that Evermer has to be either Ravenclaw or... Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Yeah, because, because Evermere's he's very big principled. thing is loyalty and allegiance and, like, ideals. Yes, yes. And he's very loyal because of, like, personal morals. And I think that... So if he were a Ravenclaw, he would have to have a constructed ethical system. And I think that he doesn't. I, I'm leaning more towards Gryffindor now that I'm thinking about it. That makes it. sense. In terms of secondaries, he tends to have a very reserved way of doing things he thinks that there is a he, at the beginning of the book at least like he has a very black and white approach to the world and part of his character arc is like learning about how to see the world in a more nuanced kind of way and be more flexible and adaptive he and... feels kind of like a hufflepuff to me and that like he just he does things and he does them well and he does them to, to like good measure. yeah yeah i mean he definitely has that kind of like hard work and dedication aspect right. to it as well. So I think mm -hmm. that he very well may be a Gryffindor primary, Hufflepuff secondary. That's uh, legit. Yeah. As for Kado, 
Kado thinks about what he's doing a lot. I think that mm-hmm. if anyone... So Kado is operating by the ethical system of the world around him, but he's thinking about it so much and implementing it in ways that are almost like he's taking what he's given and then he's deconstructing it and rebuilding it. And so I think that he might be a Ravenclaw primary. That works for me. Because he's like deliberately checking every piece of what he's being told is good and right. And then sometimes deciding to do it a little bit better. He could also be a Slytherin primary because in terms of his loyalty, he operates a lot on loyalty as well. And his is very much a loyalty to people, except his idea of the people that he's loyal to comprises the entire kingdom, which is hard for him. That's legitimate. That's that's how my Slytherins in my current book work. They all have a different yeah. sphere of who they consider their people. And for some, yeah. some of them, it's larger than I, others. I feel like, though, for Cardo, for me, the piece that makes him stick out as a Ravenclaw is that he processes and thinks actively and can logic yeah. about stuff. I think that that makes sense. And it's more, um, you're right, because Slytherin would be more emotional about it. Yeah. No, so, okay, so he's a Ravenclaw primary for sure. And then what are his methods? What What is his secondary? He is currently, at the beginning of the book, bound a lot by his anxiety. He has a chronic... But that's not... No, 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 I know. So, like, I'm saying that his methods, he may have a burned secondary, is what sure. I was leading up to saying here. Um, because, it. like, he is swamped so much by his own brain that he could have a burned Ravenclaw secondary. What do you think? Mm. That he's trying to learn lots of things? I'm not as familiar with the secondaries as I am with the primaries. Ravenclaw secondary does lend itself to anxiety because it's all about how do I – it's about overthinking in a yeah. productive way. Because you can tie yourself in knots a bit if you're constantly planning, planning, making you know contingency plans. And anxiety yeah. is what happens when that gets ramped up to a thousand. Let's come back to it. Macy, were you about to say something? Yeah, I wouldn't say that Ravenclaw is necessarily all about planning, though, but it's also about like picking up skills and tools. Um, so like not all Ravenclaws are over, over planners. Yeah. Right? You yeah. can get a Slytherin who is continually thinking and adapting alternate structures. They would just be more comfortable swapping between them. So like, there's a lot like... Uh, and listeners, if you are confused about what the heck we are talking about, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, we discussed the um, Sorting Hat Chat's split sorting algorithm in our second, I believe, episode on taxonomy. Yes, mm. and we have mentioned it many times since then, so you should really because get caught up with nerds. it if you haven't already. <laughs> we are nerds. But, okay, Freya, what do you feel that your sorting would be, I guess, for your um, Edwardian characters? Yes, Robin is a Gryffindor. Sort of almost a very pure Gryffindor. So he's someone who has an incredibly emotional and reactive uh, moral drive. I was thinking about it. He has some hints of Ravenclaw to his primary because he does construct his morality a little bit in reaction to the morals of the people he saw growing up. But at the same time, I think it wasn't done entirely consciously. Like there are some actions he takes consciously in terms of his behavior, uh, but his morality is still something that he feels in his gut. And he is 100% a Gryffindor secondary. He is Magnus rushes in. He is... (laughs) How can I punch this problem? Robin is a precious soft jock, uh, yes. and we he love him. He is. I have never written a jock character before, and Robin was so <laughs> enjoyable. I had to give him like other interests so that I could process the world through his eyes without just <laughs> constantly talking about cricket or rowing. <laughs> 
Uh, That's Robin. Uh, And Edwin is definitely a Ravenclaw secondary. His response to anything is, how can I go to the library about this? (laughs) But I I was having trouble working out what his primary was. I think that it is Ravenclaw again. Whatever it is, it's probably burned. Like, it's it's come out of something that was burned. But I'm not quite sure what the burned one was. And it may actually be that he was Hufflepuff and was burned and has now had to sort of piece together a morality system. But his morality system, I've been trying to think about it, and I, it's not something I, you see a lot in the book. Like, he has mm-hmm. beliefs about the ways in which people should be treated, but most of it is just about self-preservation. Like, he doesn't have time to think about how he's treating other people because he mostly is not interacting with other people. So when he does interact with them on a casual basis or having to come in contact with them he's not very nice he's not a nice person so i don't think you can think of him as having like a very generous morality so i think he's a burned hufflepuff who's got kind of a bit of a shell of a ravenclaw primary at the moment yeah because robin's just nice nice that makes a lot of sense (laughs) edwin is not a nice person yeah no edwin has suffered poor boy and that that makes complete sense of him it's it's similar to becca right the the protagonist of of hagstone Mm where their community has kind of stripped away the illusions of caring. Yes, no, I think no, I think he does he does have that help up because he wants to be part of a community desperately yes. and feels strongly the ways in which he is a failure to the two communities that he could be a part of. Corbin. Uh and has reacted against it by pretending that he doesn't care even though he does care very deeply. I want to hug him but he might stab me. He would just stand there really still and look deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> And then Robin might punch you. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I I would forgive Robin for that reaction. So I think first up of my two, let's talk about Punchy Blacksmith. I love Yay. Punchy Blacksmith so much. I love Punchy Blacksmith too. She is... Speaking of jocks. Yeah, no, speaking of jocks, she likes hitting things. That's why lot. she got into blacksmithing, Mostly... so that she could just like repeatedly hit a thing. Yes. Um. I Yes, she is upset when she doesn't get to hit things. And occasionally punches walls and or throws teacups at them. She is irretrievably Gryffindor secondary. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, that's not even a question. I feel like if if your predominant Um, adjective is punchy, then you are probably a Gryffindor (laughs) secondary. Let's be honest. (laughs) I think unless you're using the other meaning of the word punchy, Mm. in which, yes. No, she is very much the punch first, ask questions never. That would involve talking, and why would why would she do why that? Why would she talk when she could punch? Why, yes, um, sometimes with her mouth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds painful. Listen, I'm trying to inject a little bit of romance into this book, okay, friends? And then they punched with their mouths. It was so sexy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning, okay? We're all learning. I'm learning we'll slowly. Get I'm getting used to this. Um, I, th- I want to say that she's probably a Gryffindor primary as well there's a lot of things about that she feels the world owes her um because she was born to a family that had magic that's why they were blacksmiths everyone in this world uh, who is a skilled artisan is there because they have magic and when she grew up and got into her teens she found out that she didn't and it was this bitter disappointment to her but she still feels very entitled to it and so she will mm. do some objectively shitty things because she feels like this was her birthright and she should get it um, and I think that comes from a place of feeling hmm. rather than logic. Kiara is an interesting mixture of Robin and Edwin in that way. It's like <laughs> if you had Edwin's upbringing but reacted to it by by turning into Robin. Oh, 
<laughs> yes, basically that. And then we get to Isabel, and Isabel is complicated because she has a couple of really big secrets that define her life, that if they got found out, she would be killed. And so she kind of wraps herself up very tight. She is either a Gryffindor or a Slytherin main, like, primary, mm. but I'm not entirely sure I know which one. She's been showing odd flashes of, like, liege behavior. Yeah. That feels like Slytherin and all of these people belong to me. Like, her quest is to make sure that nobody is ever killed for being a heretic by the church. And it's both hugely selfish, because that's what would happen if her secret was found out, and hugely selfless, because she's not just saying, I want to save me, she's saying, I want to save everyone, because they're mine. Right. I think that sounds Slytherin to me, because it's making a choice it does, about, yeah. it's not saying, this is what's right, my gut says, and applying that to everyone, it's saying, here are my people, I will do what it takes for them. Right. I think maybe the thing that leans me more towards Gryffindor a little bit is because she isn't displaying the um, moving people in and out of her circles behaviour that I would expect to see um, from a Slytherin. That moral doesn't apply to individuals, and so I think it might be more of a Gryffindor felt morality thing. Um, like, this is the right thing to do more than these people need whatever they need. But I don't know, which is interesting. And her secondary is very much Slytherin. She spends oh, yeah. all of her time... Like, plotting. <laughs> just, like, constant plotting. This girl cannot stop plotting. She cannot stop plotting. She Well, okay, the mic let's, let's be fair. Sometimes she takes a brief break from plotting to scheme. That's true. That is true. Um, and sometimes she ogles Kiara's muscles right. for a little bit. But only while also doing something else. Yeah. She's making, having a scheme about what she could do with those muscles. Right. Oh, yes, definitely. Who can she point the puncher at? Herself and her mouth. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> I will point that bicep at me. <laughs> yes, please. And thank you. Um, but she, she schemes down to the point of, like, controlling her micro-expressions. God, she's so good. I love her. But I will say, this was the first book I've ever done that is from two point of views. And so I'm kind of learning a lot that way. But one of the things I ha I found for myself was that these sorting hat chats were not enough for me to get kind of a gut feeling for these characters. Mm -hmm. And I also had to decide what their primary emotional driver was. And so for me, Kiara is driven by anger and Isabel is driven by fear. That's a really good way of looking at it. Hmm. Right? I think Kato is probably driven by fear and Evermer is driven by anger. At least, well, at least at the beginning. Is it anger? Okay, hold on. Evermer is, yes, he's driven by anger and resentment for the, like the whole first third of the book. And after that, he is driven by his like compulsive loyalty. Right. Yeah. But the first, for the first third of the book, because like I said, it's enemies to lovers. Uh, right. yes. And so, yeah, so at the first third of the book, he absolutely is like, look at this motherfucker. I hate him so much. <laughs> I hate him, but I have to be around him and I have to like do whatever he says, but I hate him. Hmm. I do. I resent everything about him. And then it's like, oh, wait, Particularly no. Particularly how pretty he is and how soft he looks and like his hair. Yeah. And how he is having like these anxiety attacks everywhere. Everything is terrible. Oh, no, he's hot. Yeah. Uh, yeah my, the first quarter of my book is a lot of mutual, oh, no, he's hot. Except, no, actually, Edwin has, oh, no, he's hot about Robin. Robin's like, look at this ugly dude. Why would I care about him? Oh, and then no. about a third of the way through oh. the book, he has a literal, oh no, 
He's hot. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, so how about you two? Was there anything that you kind of felt was new about this particular book for you that you learned something from? I learned, finally, and I was <laughs> very proud of this. I learned how to write a sex scene this month. Yay! <laughs> I last or earlier in the year I wrote a book and it has a sex scene in it, but did I write it? No. Freya wrote it for me and said, put it into your own words. And it cheating. I well it was cheating, but like when you have a podcast wife, you can get away with these kinds of things as long as you like tell a funny joke about it every time. Um, and thank her nicely in the acknowledgments. Um No, but for this one I actually wrote the whole sex scene myself and I was very proud of myself. And Freya told me that I did a good job. She did. And, and she told me how to go. fix it. Yes, Alex did a very good job. And Alex also put the sex scene in the right place, which I had to uh, tell them After where some it was. cajoling. After some cajoling. But yes, you, <laughs> Freya was right about everything. We should always listen to Freya when That's it comes true. to where to put the sex. Yeah. I still have an act left in this book and there is going to need to be sex at some point. So I will probably also be like coming to Freya with like, I did this thing. Does Is this hot? Like I did with the kisses earlier in this book. And this is why it is good that we're kind of on the same wavelength about tropes because mm. you can't write a sex scene that is hot to everyone. Like everyone, no, yeah. everyone has their own thing. But I think we have enough in common when it comes to emotional beats and tropes that we enjoy that right. we can at least make a judgment call on whether it's doing what the person who's written it wants it to do. Yeah. Also, I love that we can like cheat on our leveling up by being like, hey, Freya, um, you know how romance beats work really well. How do can I have a kiss here? Or is that going to fuck everything up? What yes. if I have a kiss and then make them have like a really devastating argument immediately afterwards? Yes. Then can I have a kiss? Yes. yes. We're not we're not reinventing the wheel every time. We can just ask Freya, how do wheels work? Yes. <laughs> and then Freya can take her vehicle comprised entirely of wheels to you two and say, <laughs> I think it needs a world, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> And then I can start like shouting about, I can assign you chapter readings from Braudel about mountains. I haven't done the, the one about islands yet, right. but I'm going to, right. <laughs> given that I'm writing a book about an island. Oh, what did I learn this month? Probably something that I did that I haven't done before was historical research, mm. given that I'm writing a historical fantasy. And I'm going to have to go through in one of my editing passes and remove a lot of anachronistic language and yeah. right. throw it in front of some English people and say, where is the weird Australianism in this? Please remove it. You were you were writing a Just... book that was very much in your wheelhouse. And it seems like you, like, it was a, a lot of material that you were already, like, super comfortable with. And, like, had mastery over. Like porn. Oh, yeah, the porn. Absolutely. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, but um, the, the country manor house with a scheming relatives and a murder. Right. Yeah, that was fun. It was going to be more murder mystery-ish than it is currently. Like, it definitely doesn't have the structure of a murder mystery. There is right. a murder. There are a couple of murders. And who did them and why is certainly part of what's being discovered in the book. But it definitely doesn't have that structure of let's find out who did right. it. Hmm, here's a red herring. Here's some clues. Let's you know go and investigate right. because there are other things that are more urgent to the characters. But as part of their investigation, they do find out more about the murder. 
but I could not structure a murder mystery <laughs> to save my life at this point in my in my rightly <laughs> development. Maybe one day. Yes, yes. I think I think you already had like two full books worth of structure in there, which is about what one needs when one's doing a crossover fantasy romance. Yeah, yeah. But like three is probably. Um, yeah, it has the structure of the first book of a fantasy trilogy. With like a magical MacGuffin and some bad guys and things. It's yep. not a complicated plot at all. And it has a romance plot in it. And I think, yes, having a murder mystery plot on top of that would have completely confused the beats. I can, you can yes, fit a murder mystery, sorry, you can fit a romance around a suspense plot. You right. can fit it around a fantasy plot. For sure. Um, but you can't necessarily weave too many genres together or else, yeah, yes. your beats start getting lost. Yeah, I think two is probably comfortable. Three is a little bit unwieldy. Yeah. Well, I mean, Witchmark had, um, it was a murder mystery backbone, which I wasn't expecting. I was expecting sort of like, oh, some fantasy stuff right. and a romance. But actually the predominant plot line was of a murder mystery. And then it had some fantasy yes. stuff around there. And then it had some romance stuff sort of sprinkled around the sides. But the, the romance was not driving any of the beats of the story. That's because it was like a Sherlock Holmesian kind of story, and so it had to be a mystery. I think that that's one of the things that I'm learning reading the uh, Robert Jackson Bennett City of Stairs, City of Blades books, which are spy hijink military books, but also epic fantasy, death of the gods, colonialist, like anti-colonialist books, and... He pulls it off, but he doesn't put anything else in there. There is not a romance, you know? Mm. There is not um, all that much of a change in a given character. Like, nobody discovers they're the heir to the throne. All of that sort of stuff. Like, he, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he gets a lot in there because he knows how to keep it down to what it needs to be. Mm. And I, ha I had a Twitter thread recently about, you know, my role as champion of sex and romance in the science fiction fantasy genre and how is my life's work <laughs> and I have accepted that. But I absolutely would not say that every book needs to have a romance and no book right. needs to have sex scenes. It's more about if you've decided that you want that to be a predominant theme, if you want that to be one of the threads that you're playing with, learn to do it well. And yes, you can learn completely. learn to do it from romance writers and from uh, people who've been playing with these threads as predominant ones. And there are a lot of books that have like a little bit of romance sprinkled in on the sides, but they're always, a, I always find those a little bit unsatisfying. I think if you put it, if you shoehorn something in because you think it should be there because someone told you there should be some romance, you almost just don't bother. Just pick the, pick, pick the two genres or threads that you want to do. But if you want romance to be a predominant thing, then learn the beats and actually give it enough space that we believe. Yeah. And I think that that's, there's no excuse for not learning the beats because romance authors have done so much work on craft, more than almost anybody else. And Absolutely. they write it down and they write blog posts and they have podcasts. So, you know, the material is there. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think I learned as well as the two POVs this month. I also, like, I plotted my book before I wrote it. You did kind of like I like lied to myself that I wasn't and it kind of worked but like that's weird I don't trust this you know yeah but at least it's but you're getting through I think if you hadn't plotted yes. you would have yeah. gotten predominantly stuck <laughs> there's I think I went through and counted at one point and there are approximately five distinct 
action plot threads weaving through this book about like uh, various organizations with rivalries against one another trying to achieve various different ends like completely like five to seven completely different actors each with their own intentions and goals and actions and it just would not have worked if I hadn't sat down and said hang on where do these intersect what scenes need to happen um, and how does that fit into the arch of the entire book but I haven't done that before and it's weird and also I am grumpy because a 120,000 word adult fantasy book takes longer to write than a 72,000 word young adult fiction book and you I find don't this unfair. Say. How dare. Don't I find say. this deeply unfair and I want to write a letter to the manager. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> the other thing that I learned this month was really about like how much fun writing can be cuz mm -hmm. um like sometimes for a lot of my writing career, like I have been writing the thing that sort of interests me intellectually and that engages with me as an interesting topic, but not the thing that I love on a deep and visceral level. And with mm -hmm. this book, that's what I'm writing. I'm just writing like everything that makes me really, really happy. And it's amazing how much fun it is and how little anxiety I have about like approaching the page because you know how like you wake up like you have to d get some writing done and so you maybe p procrastinate about it or put it off or go oh god oh god oh god like oh no I have to go write now but every day it's been oh I get to write this book now and that's been a really interesting revelation and I hope that I can carry on that kind of lesson to the other ones and keep writing stuff that makes me just really fucking happy. Whereas I think that for me, I will always procrastinate yeah. on a day by day basis because I am a slow and steady turtle writer. Mm. If I set myself a goal, I will achieve it precisely. I will not do more and I will not do less. I write the same amount in the four hours I have on a workday evening as I do when I have a full day on the weekend. Yeah. Because I'm a little weirdo. I don't think that's necessarily weird. That's pretty common that people find that yeah. a task is like a gas. It will expand to fill the volume that it has. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. And I want to say it was Sean and Maguire at the Nebula's convention two years ago who was talking about the piece of um, being kind to yourself as a writer that people don't talk about, which is how to be kind to yourself when you're an overachiever. Like there's a lot of yeah. conversation about how to be kind to yourself when you have challenges and you can't make word count and you're finding it really hard to get stuff done. But there's very little about, oh, you can write 100,000 words in a month. You should just do that every month. Why not write more? I couldn't like, do it every everyone... month. I could not. Yeah. I absolutely could not do that every month. Right. But like, she can. Yeah. And it's a question of like setting a goal for yourself that won't harm yourself and also not allowing yourself to go over just as much as you don't allow yourself to go under if you know that about yourself, yeah. right? So I have chronic RSI and I refuse to challenge myself to ever write more than 50,000 in a month. Good. Yep, that's healthy. It, it's, yeah, but it, it's also like, it sucks as a kind of fairly type A competitive person that I have to remind myself that I'm not allowed to be competitive in quite that way. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. But why 
do we do it this way? Why does, why NaNoWriMo? Why sprint writing? Um, NaNoWriMo, I have done NaNoWriMo every year since 2004. This was the 15th year in a row that I have done it. And at this point, it's sort of habit. It's the best mm -hmm. part of the year. It's the thing that I look forward to. Like some people look forward to Christmas. And I love being part of the community. I love being in the middle of writing when everyone else is in the middle of writing. I guess it's sort of yes. like how... Some people get up every day and they go for a morning run and that's fun and, and healthy for them and it centers them and makes them feel good. And then sometimes you run in a marathon with a lot of other people who are also doing the same thing that you're doing and you feel connected to them. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Yeah, I agree. I like the, the fact that you're writing at the same time as a lot of other people because for most of my writing life, November has been because in Australia, the beginning of the school or academic year is in January and the end of it is in mm. late November, early December. November is usually exam period. So if all through high school, all through um, university, both undergraduate and then medical school, November has been a time where I, I can't do it because I have other things that are taking priority. And I've tried occasionally to do the NaNoWriMo word count at other months, but it's always fallen over because mm. I haven't had that communality. And that sense that right. everyone can get together on mm -hmm. Slack or on chat and be like, uh, what have you got? Oh, God, word count, word count, <laughs> complain, 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 which, let's be honest, yeah. has been my predominant contribution to NaNoWriMo. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you have other people doing it, and that does make a lot yes. of a difference. And, I mean, this is only the second time I've done it in November. Last time was two years ago because last year I was on holidays. Mm -hmm. And two years ago I wrote 60,000 words of fanfic i think like i did i did a lot mm -hmm. of yuletide writing a few years ago over november and i really enjoyed the rush of meeting a certain word count every day and i managed it because it was yeah. working on a lot of different disparate things and i think this year what got in the way of me doing more was that end of book dip which right. i was fighting against and have only just succumbed to uh, and I'm going to try and keep working through, but I may need to take a bit of a break in December to actually give myself that break. Because it was like I, ra I you know, finished running a very slow marathon, turned around, realized I'd ended my marathon in the middle of another marathon and thought, well, everyone around me is still running, so let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and my body has just reached the point of being like, what were you thinking? <laughs> go and sit down and have some water. <laughs> yes, go have some Gatorade. We'll mail you some Gatorade. Yeah. We probably can't because yeah. customs will confiscate it for being something. I don't think there's anything Literally, like yeah. organic in, in Gatorade. That's fair. I'll <laughs> be like, oh, look, Lurid crystals. Are you casting aspersions on their blue flavoring? We have Gatorade in Australia. It's okay. It's not like the pits okay. of despair. <laughs> um, I, I think... For me, uh, this is my 11th, but I don't always do them in November because that's frequently choir season. So like for uh, Freya, it's exam season. When you are in a classical music gig, Christmas carol all season. the concerts, yep, Christmas carol season, dress rehearsals, infinite dress rehearsals, screaming directors, so many oboists. Uh <laughs> I'm just imagining like a horde of oboists just like springing out of nowhere to like harass you. It's not, listen. Macy's life has been plagued by oboists. It's not the volume of oboists, right? It's the concentration. Apologies to any oboists <laughs> upon our listenership who Macy has just alienated. Oh, okay. <laughs> to clarify, darling oboists, I'm a clarinetist, okay? We're bros. 
But like we, no one else knows what that means. But I'm sure that the oboists, the oboists do. Do bless their little duck-sounding hearts. I was talking about writing. Why do I do NaNoWriMo? I do NaNoWriMo because I'm a task-oriented little person, right? I like having 1,667 words to write every day. I like having a graph and making it go up and making the colours turn green. That was going to be the other thing that I said. Yes. Yes. The graph is so good. Yes. Ah, uh, when when this is over, friends, I will put on Twitter my graph for this year because yeah. it is a thing of beauty because I love making my graph super even. Oh yeah, your graph like I have seen your graph and it's like the perfect amount, like it's perfect. It <laughs> she writes the same amount every day. It's like flawless. It's gorgeous. I, I am the turtle. The turtle is you me. Are. And I like having an excuse to like whine for other people to sprint with me because mm-hmm. I like writing communally, even when we're all writing totally different things. It feels like yeah. we're in this together. And I think that writing can be a really lonely career in a lot of ways. And in November or whenever you choose to do NaNoWriMo, it doesn't have to be like that. Even if your word count isn't trying for 50,000, even if you're just taking a little bit of time to dedicate to writing and seeing what you get, it's still communal. And those graphs, though. I, I didn't actually sign graphs. up for NaNoWriMo yeah. on the website, so I didn't actually have the beautiful graph, but I have a spreadsheet. <gasps> Spreadsheets yeah. are good. I get I get a whole lot out of like getting to enter my daily word count into yes. a spreadsheet. Yes. And like that was, I think, the thing that got me through my writing uh, challenge that I did last year. I challenged myself to end the year with a 1,000 word per day average. And one of the biggest motivators was just getting to like enter my word count for the day in the spreadsheet. <laughs> it turns out humans are um, reward-motivated little monkeys. Speaking of reward or motivation. Or something. <laughs> this is tangentially related. But did you see that tweet that was going around with somebody who had decided to reward themselves for the 100,000 word book they were planning to write by wrapping themselves up a whole lot of presents. Yes. One for each 10K. Okay. I thought that was the greatest idea ever. It was a personal revelation. I didn't ever realize you could wrap presents for yourself. I know. It's an amazing thing. I went out and bought beautiful white and gold, like geometric paper. It's so pretty. And then I went out and bought a lot of presents for myself. (laughs) And these are things like, all three seasons of The Magicians on DVDs and like I can Uh. open one at 30k and one at 60 and one at 90 Mm. and like you know a (laughs) box of chocolates or a nice kind of tea they're not super fancy presents although the 150,000 one which is probably where I'm aiming for for total word count for this Mm. new book because it is a high fantasy book is a bottle of triple wood Ockentoshan scotch whiskey (gasps) which I am very excited about so I can see them from here. They are underneath my television, wrapped up with 120K and 80K and stuff on big letters. I am excited to see whether this makes a difference to how quickly <laughs> I reach my 150K goal. But we will have to do a lot of sprinting to get me there. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I want to talk a little bit about kindness for a moment, specifically being kind to yourself. So here's the thing. I've done 11 NaNoWriMo's now, and I've never once lost. 
The first one I ever did when I was 18 was the first time I'd ever tried to write fiction that was more than a thousand words long. And I managed to do 50,000. But I did that by not letting myself eat until I hit word count. Now, I mentioned that last episode, and the other serpents were rightly uh, kind of horrified, because that's pretty fucked up and not worth it. You know, nano or get your words out or any of the other writing challenges we set for ourselves, they aren't worth risking our health and well-being to achieve. And I know a lot of you are like me. You're ambitious. You have goals that you want to achieve. You have dreams that you want to make happen. But you're important too. You deserve looking after. Now, coming up, we'll be heading back into our more usual format with some exciting new topics to talk about. On the next episode, two weeks hence on January 2nd, we'll be discussing murder. If you want to prepare in advance, One of the tentpoles for that episode is the Stargate Atlantis fanfic, Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose, by Synectochick. So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter or Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan discord, which we've linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, please do remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, I really do think you'll do it. Your dream, that is. I think you'll make it happen. Just don't forget to be kind to yourself along the way. <laughs>